You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, and record it. <laughs> it's easier so, to disseminate that way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we could just go to everyone's house and repeat the conversation or, you know. That know, could never happen door with to us. Door. Never. <laughs> we would be like, oh, yeah, we were supposed to tell you this. And then we, we'd go off on another rabbit trail and people would be completely lost <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of that. It's it's that weird kind of. I've been told it's like a like a, an Irish thing where you like you need to go talk to somebody about something and you talk about everything else until right before you have to leave. I thought that was being polite. I mean, <laughs> I think it's also I think it's also like a Southern thing. Yeah, like you you don't show up and ask somebody exactly what you need. You talk about the weather and the. <laughs> Politics. Ask about the crops. <laughs> Talk, yeah, their dog. Yeah, yeah, their seventh cousin, and you're like, oh, by the way, can I borrow your trailer? Right. <laughs> now that we've established we're still friends, now we can get down to business. <laughs> yeah. So, but... I don't know. Could could be live podcasting door to door, but not really actually podcasting. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we just need to, be, to make friends. So. I say we, I think the biggest problem we would have is that we'd actually have to interact with people. Like I was telling someone this past weekend, it's like people in masses. I, I'm really not a big fan of now individuals. I can like a lot, sure, but sure. you know, I'm the same way. <laughs> but you know, and but speaking of people, where that that conversation actually happened, I got to spend this last weekend with Doug Obermeyer from CRC Ministries, and uh, I just wanted to give a big shout out to Doug for putting all that together and the other people who helped. Uh, there was a, several people there, and I don't want to name any names other than Doug because he is, you know, it's unavoidable. He's the figurehead. But amazing, amazing time. Um, you know, you just, there's some people that you meet and it's like, oh, yeah, you're definitely family. You actually belong to my tribe. I know this, even though we've only got to spend five minutes together. And Doug and his wife, Amy, it was the same thing. Uh, Jerry and his wife, same thing. Uh, so... It was just a really cool weekend, and uh, we'll have some stuff um, coming up, some announcements with some pr- future projects with Doug later in the podcast or, you know, somewhere in the podcast in the future. So, Yeah, not, not this episode, but... Not this episode. Future podcast. Yeah, but, so. but stay tuned. Tune in next week to find out the incredible adventures of... Okay, sorry. Yeah. A little nostalgia there. Well, speaking <laughs> of incredible adventures, um, adventures, <laughs> I should say, I guess... I should enunciate the whole word. Um, we're talking about David, who's on one. We were going to wrap up Psalm 55. And yeah. Then, uh, go to Jeremiah 9. Is that what we're doing this week? That, that seems to be the game plan. We'll, we'll see if we can stick to it. So we uh, had started 55 last week, and we had talked about how David was just being very real and very honest with his emotions and about how he was kind of just working through this depth of betrayal by a good friend and how much honesty that takes to actually talk about real wounds and not just, you know, minor offenses and that you don't don't always get to those core level issues with people because, you know, we're talking about being really vulnerable, not just, you know, having a chance to be irritated. We all walk around in a state of, you know, possible irritation at any moment. Maybe that's just me. But the idea that you can actually be wounded by someone that you care about, you can be played by a good friend and betrayed by people you trust. And we kind of, uh, I use the analogy of a church split. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we, we kind of left off there, but then David kind of jerks us back to, to the truth in verse 22, um, because yes, we've gone through this terrible time, he's dealing with the facts of his feelings, which um, we just got to discuss this last week uh, at this weekend with Doug. Um, facts are what you can weigh. They're what you can measure. They're tangible. They're, they're something that you can prove or disprove. They're, they're observable. 
but truth isn't always in alignment with facts. And so the the truth is, the facts are that David's been hurt, he's been displaced from his throne, but the truth is God's still in control, God still has this, he hasn't forgotten about David, and so David deals with the facts very honestly, almost brutally in the psalm, and then in verse 22, he he confronts himself and his listeners with the truth, and the truth is, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. You know, he's not asking God, hey, God, can you sustain me? Hey, God, can you keep me from being moved? He's declaring this is the truth. This is a non-negotiable. And so he's encouraging all those who are following him, which, as we've said, if this is David and he's on this road uh, out of Jerusalem trying to regroup, he's got a whole group of people with him. And so they would be hearing the song and they would be... um, encouraged by this truth to to continue in the good work that they've started. And so, you know, at the on the surface level, this would have looked very contrary to what they're experiencing in this moment because they're all on the run. Absalom is a very real threat. He could try and will try to kill them. And so the fact that David can say, "Hey, this is the truth in the middle of the situation." It's huge. And I think that's something that we need to take away from the psalm is that when we're in the middle of crazy, chaotic times where nothing's working out, the things that God's promised us don't seem to be on the, even on the horizon, can we go back to this truth? Can we go back and say, hey, this is who God is, and I can count on this not because of who I am, but because of who God is. So verse 23, David gets more vivid in his description of what God will do. But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. So the righteous cast their burdens on God. They cast their cares on God. And God cast down the men of blood. So you have that that little parallelism there. And we have this um, callback to verse 15, where the psalmist asks God to deal with those who have betrayed the psalmist. Punishment is divine. We talked about this last week with the uh, rebellion of Korah and his sons back in Numbers. And that's the thing. The punishment cannot be instigated by the psalmist because at this point, if he tries anything, then just like Moses would have been perceived as a despot and, uh, and somebody who's just trying to bully everyone to follow his leadership, there, there's no real evidence that God's behind him. However, if he pulls back, if he waits for that moment when God moves on his ha- behalf, then we have evidence that this psalmist really is God's chosen leader. Now, the psalm ends with no resolution. I mean, nothing's changed. Um, the psalmist is going to have to wait and see what God's response is. Despite the fact there's no resolution, um, the psalmist concludes his statement with a statement of trust. He doesn't have to see God's response to know that God will respond. Now, last week I mentioned that there is a connection to Jeremiah 9. And if you just read through the passage, you will see that there is this very evident shared emotional profile. And so the the wording doesn't always line up, but we're going to talk about some episodes or some some verses where it does. But over and over again, what we're seeing are connected themes. And what's interesting is when you realize Psalm 55 connects with Jeremiah 9, and Psalm 55 is connected to David, at least through tradition, whether he wrote it or not, what we see is a line back to 2 Samuel. And it, it's very revealing what it shows us about David's heart and God's heart. And so um, I want to begin with talking a little bit about the book of Jeremiah itself. Now, I've spent a lot of time in Jeremiah and that, you know, a huge part of my master's thesis. And then Joe's going to make a joke about that. Just I know it. So we're going to call it out. But anyway, um, Heschel, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote the book called The Prophets. And I pulled on a lot of his sources. When you're talking about the prophets from a Jewish perspective, from an Old Testament Hebraic perspective, it's hard to go wrong with Heschel. Uh, Absolutely love his work. So I thought what we begin by doing is 
talking a little bit about Heschel's perspective on Jeremiah specifically to kind of help us place this passage in Jeremiah in context, because we, you know, since we aren't studying through Jeremiah, I, I felt like we needed a little background on how we get to this place with Jeremiah 9 and how it connects to Psalm 55. So first we need to know that Heschel presents the prophets as someone, as a human being who's experienced the heart of God. Uh, they're, they're not individuals who are attempting to describe some kind of abstract idea or even to describe a truth. This is not, they're not talking about something they've heard about. They're trying to describe what they have experienced with God himself. And so the idea that a prophet could actually feel the heart of God, um, this pathos, is, as Heschel refers to it, it, is what makes a prophet a prophet. This is more than just a preacher say, hey, I, you know, I read this in the Bible. This is somebody who's had an intimate experience with God himself. So Heschel notes that Jeremiah depicts the dramatic tension in the inner life of God. That's a direct quote. He also says, judgment is shown to be painful to God. It is the sublime paradox for the creator of heaven and earth to implore people so humbly. So Jeremiah's able to to write very eloquently, very, very movingly about God's pain over humanity because he felt God's pain over humanity. And contrary to popular belief, God's reaction was not one of wrath and judgment and anger. It, it's pain. It's pain over separation between God and the people he loves. And Heschel write, wrote this. He said, with Israel's distress came the affliction of God. I mean, I, think about that for one minute. With Israel's distress came the affliction of God. His homeless, homelessness was in the land, in the world. So in other words, when Israel chose to disobey, when they chose to reject God as their ultimate king, God becomes a king without a kingdom. And this grieves him. So with that in mind, you know, this perspective of why Jeremiah is writing what he wrote, this is where I want to jump into Jeremiah 9. Because I think this is what answers that really big question that so many people have about David. A lot of people will say, you know, the Bible tells us David is a man after God's own heart. But look at Bathsheba. Look at how he reacted with Tamar and Amnon. Look at, you know, all these terrible things he did. How in the world can we say he's a man after God's own heart? I think this answers the question. And I think it answers it in a much more grounded way than a lot of speculation that I've seen elsewhere. So, the first connection is in the first um, line of Jeremiah 9. Now, that's the first line according to the Hebrew. So if you're reading your Bible in English, it's going to be verse 2. And it says, oh, that I had a, oh, that I had in the desert. Okay, let me see why I wrote that wrong, because I know that can't possibly be right. I'm saying that's not how I remember it starting. Oh, so that I, I had in the had... desert. Oh, yeah, it is. A traveler's lodging place that I might leave my people. Oh, in verse 2. Two, uh-huh. Sorry. And go away from them. Okay, so the, this is our first connection with Psalm 55. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's place to lodge that I might leave my people and go away from them. So the word here translated as desert in Jeremiah 9 is the same word we found in Psalm 55. Uh, only in Psalm 55... Because translators aren't consistent, and y'all know this drives me crazy, in Psalm 55, it's wilderness. So, right. oh, that I had in the wilderness a traveler's lodge. And so, he, God here is speaking. Uh, which, which Hebrew word is that? Um, do you know off the top of your head? I didn't make a note of it, and I don't want to give you the wrong one. So, okay. Well, yeah. I'm going to look it up. I'm curious about something. Okay, well, I'll let you be curious. Satisfy our curiosity now. Um, so Keep going. I'll, I'll pick up with you in a minute. In, in uh, Psalm 7, uh, the psalmist had written, Yes, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness. So you've, still, you've got that same kind of picture. So we have one shared word, but overall the theme, the feel, and the subject matter of these verses is almost identical, even though the wording's different. And this is why we've got to remember, 
Word studies will lead you astray. If that's all you're going with is a single word, you can wind up in some of the craziest pits of theological quagmire out there. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do word studies and we shouldn't use words that connect passages to each other because, I mean, obviously we do that here on the show, so I'm not completely against it. But the themes, the profile, the, the, the topic, these are far more important than single word connections. So we need to remember that. But in each verse, I mean, the psalmist is saying, hey, I, I, I want to run away. I want to hide in the desert. I want to hide in the wilderness. Here's God saying the exact same thing. And not just go out there for a little while while things cool off. I want to live there. I want to dwell there, stay far away from people so that they can't hurt me again. Mm-hmm. Now, Jeremiah 9.1 continues, for they are all adulterers, the company of treacherous men. Now, Alter notes that the parallelism here demonstrates that adultery in the Bible is the paradigm for disloyalty. It's for mm-hmm. cheating and betrayal. And I think we all kind of know that if we've done any kind of Bible study. And we know that the psalmist is grieving what? The betrayal of an intimate friend. So we have the psalmist talking about an intimate friend. And when I say intimate friend, we got to remember that word for friend used in Psalms is that yada, that, that word that's typically used of a sexual relationship, that intimate knowing. And now we have another word, also demonstrating how this betrayal reflects the sexual act in adultery. So again, shared themes, different words, shared themes. So in both passages, uh, the Psalms and Jeremiah 9, the betrayal begins as words, and the words are portrayed as weapons of war. Jeremiah 9, 3, 8 says, They bend their tongues like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. In Psalms 55, 21, we had war was in his heart. Words were drawn swords. So again, not the same words, but that same theme where where words become weapons of war. They become weapons of destruction. And the psalmist is saying they were used against him. God is saying, this is how it was used against me. Now, Jeremiah 9, 4, and 5 says there is a blanket warning to be aware aware of friends, uh, that brothers are going to betray you. They cannot be trusted. Whereas in Psalms 55, a large portion of that psalm is about the betrayal of people you trust by a companion, that familiar, intimate friend. Now, the words, what's interesting here, the words in Jeremiah for friend and companion are not the same words used in the psalm. But they are the same words used in 2 Samuel, specifically in 2 Samuel 16 and 17, when Absalom will question, we haven't got to this part yet, but Absalom's going to question Hushai. Um, He says, is this your loyalty to your friend? And so Mm -hmm. that's the word that Absalom used to describe Hushai and, and David's relationship. It's also the word that we find of Yonadab, Jonadab, um, in, if you're going to go with the English, uh, Amnon's advisor. It's that same word there. So we have this word used in Jeremiah and Second Samuel, which isn't a huge connection, but it's kind of a hint that we should connect Jeremiah 9, not just to Psalm 55, but also back to Second Samuel. And then in verse 7 of Jeremiah 9, we have, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you've been following this podcast over Samuel from the beginning, you know that this is a very, very Samuel title for God. This is the the title that the writer of the book uses to introduce God in 1 Samuel 1. But it was the title, he's drawing on the title that Hannah uses for God in her prayer. And she's the first person to address God this way. And then David picks up this title and uses it of God in 2 Samuel 6 and 7. So very much part of the, the, the fabric of 2 Samuel or of Samuel uh, as a whole. And so again, we, we have this connection through Psalm 55 back to 2 Samuel. So you kind of have this thread that connects these, these three passages together to give you a bigger picture, a, a, a fuller understanding of what's going on, not just with David and not just with God, but by putting them together, we see how the two men are going to, or I guess men, I hate to use the term of God, but these two beings are, are being um, connected in a shared experience. 
So Jeremiah 9, 6 says, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know, declares the Lord. So Alter translates this completely different. What I just read was the ESV. Alter says, your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. In deceit, they refuse to know me, said the Lord. So Alter's translation is more faithful to the Masoretic text than um, the ESV. And it offers another connection back to Psalm 55. If you remember in Psalm 55, the men who never changed, and so they were judged. And so you you have this, this refusal versus uh, of um, a refusal to know the Lord and then a refusal to change. So again, shared themes there. In the, in the next section of Jeremiah 9, which I'm not going to get into each verse, but I do think this was interesting. I'm going to chase a little bit of a rabbit here with this because um, I think it's worthwhile to note. Jeremiah asked, who is the wise man that, that can understand? Why is the land ruined and the land and laid to waste like a wilderness? So what I found interesting with this is God bypasses the answer. Um, he, he's like, you know, let's just forget the first part of that question. Let, let's, let's get down to a more meatier matter. And um, he explains why the land is in ruin. Now, the psalmist, of course, prayed that those who belong to, to the world will receive divine um, discipline. And so God is saying, you know, everything's in shambles because I have chosen to discipline the world. So we have a little bit of a shift, and we see this kind of break between Psalm 55 and Jeremiah 9, where the psalmist, as a human being, asks for divine discipline to be enacted. And in Jeremiah 9, we have God enacting divine discipline and explaining why. But it's uh, also interesting to note that in Jeremiah 9, 17 through 23, where Jeremiah asked for a man, God says, you need to go talk to the women. And you need to talk to the women who, who understand this. Now, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, when we talk about wise women, we just got through reading about the wise woman of Tekoa. Mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of a, um, oh, there, there's kind of a little wink at the wise women in, in David's life and the influence they had over him. And I think it's also interesting that God says, you don't need to talk to the men. You need to talk to the women who's accurately assess the situation, who understand what's going on because the men don't get it. Well, that's the whole book of Samuel. That's the platform for Samuel. The men didn't get it. Hannah did. And so she had to step up and say the prayers, make the request, and say, God, I'm willing to do whatever I can if we can just set this nation back on course. And as a woman, here's what I have to offer, which is having a child. And so if your Bible doesn't say that Jeremiah should call on the wise woman, you're probably reading the ESV. The ESV actually reads that they should call that Jeremiah should call on the skilled women. Yep, that's what now, I have in the in the ESV here. Yeah. Um, well, I I also found it. I I mean, I I kind of when I read through it, I was kind of thinking of like the uh, old practice of of a. Uh, paying people to come mourn uh you know like professional mourners people used to have i don't know if there's anything Mm -hmm. to that but well and i think that is kind of in the text that there's there's yes you're calling the women to mourn but why are the women willing to mourn because they get it uh and what was what was hannah when she went to the to the um tabernacle or to the where the ark of the covenant was she went to mourn because she got it. And so the women are getting it here. Now, the Hebrew literally reads that these women have chokmah. Chokmah is wisdom. And so it, it's not skill. We have a completely different word in Hebrew for skilled. And so um, now wisdom in Hebrew is the ability to not only have a skill, but also to communicate or demonstrate how your skill applies in a specific practical way. 
And so the word for skill, I'm going to show you how you can tell there's two different words. If you look at Exodus 35, 35, God himself is talking about the artisans of the, of the tabernacle. He says, I have filled them with skill. And in, um, he's not just talking about wisdom. He'd already used that word. He says, I filled them with wisdom. So we have two distinct words. There's also another word for uh, artisans or artistic works, which would encompass, quote unquote, performance art, which would be what um, paid lamenters would kind of fall under that, that umbrella. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's also in Exodus thirty-five, thirty-five, because it says, "I filled them with skill for artistic works to do artistic works," and so skill and artistic works fall under the umbrella of wisdom. But wisdom itself is greater than skill; it's greater than the ability to create artistic uh, works. And as far as I can tell, there's absolutely no reason for the ESV to change this translation. Where every time, and I I didn't look all of the references up, but almost everything that I did look up, the the writers, when it came to men or God, they talked about wisdom. But when it came to these women here in Jeremiah, suddenly they aren't wise, they're skilled. And so when people talk about finding finding bias within translations, I think this is an example of that. Because why else would they do it? Well, and, and the thing is, the problem with it is there's there's actually the the people who talk about bias in translations are going to be the people who know enough to look for bias in translations. <laughs> the problem is a lot of the people who are looking for fault with the Bible don't know enough w- about the Bible to know that that's a translation issue uh, when right. they're looking for fault and discriminatory uh, language I- mm-hmm. in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, this is, if you look at the writers, and this is one thing you can do with most, um, with most Bibles, they'll have in the front who their committee is, um, what kind of theological background they come from. Uh, and with the ESV, it comes from a very complementarian crowd. It comes from a very Calvinistic crowd. And so you can see in certain places where that bias does come up. Now, I still like it for certain things. Uh, it is a very accessible book to read. It's a very accessible translation. And I don't think overall the message of the Bible is undermined by it. I mean, most of these things that I've brought up on the podcast, uh, a lot of other even more feminist uh, Bible scholars, which I kind of almost hate to use that title of myself, uh, I, even though I've been called that, uh, they haven't picked up on these. Why? Because they're not going back to the original translations. And so I'm not trying to like just stir up trouble and, oh, look how bad the ESV translators are. I I really want us to be aware that these are translation issues. Like you said, these are not um, original language problems. These aren't even a problem within the, the biblical text itself in the original languages. This is where people have read their bias into the Bible, and we all do it. I'm not saying I'm I'm free of that. Uh, we all bring our own baggage to it, and that's okay as long as we recognize it. And we, we say, okay, what do I do to counter this? And mm-hmm. unfortunately, I don't think that the committee, the translation committee of the ESV Bible always took a step back and said, is this my bias or is this what it really says? Because the literal word is hokma. Hokma is wisdom. And wisdom is not a skill. That That is a skill falls under that umbrella. And so there's kind of a, it's a diminishing language is what it is. It's very subtle, but it is there. So anyway, Psalms, uh, I said, Jeremiah 9 ends in much the same way of Psalm 59, uh, 55. The, it's, there's an affirmation of God's faithfulness, but this time it's God reassuring humanity, and we should have faith in God because of who he is. So we're right back in that same declaration that the psalmist gave us in Psalm 55. We have faith. We have hope. We have security. Why? Because God has been who he's always been. God will be who he's always been. Uh, you know, it, it's, it, he never changes. And so we can count on that and we can rely on that. He is enthroned in heaven and he might be, quote unquote, dethroned for a moment on earth, but it's because of divine decision and choices 
and he will return to reclaim that throne. And, you know, I think we're all hoping for that as believers. We can't wait for that day. And so it's this really drives home for me the importance of knowing who God is. Uh, and I didn't, okay, little rabbit trail. There is a lot of myths, and I'm not using that in the academic terms. I'm using that as there's a lot of lies. Let's just call them what they are. There's a lot of lies out there on the internet about who God is. And there's just half-truths, even more than just the blatant lies. There's twists and perversions of, of what the Bible says. This is why we've got to know our word. We need to know who God is. We need to see how he operates through all of history. We need to be able to look back at the stories of the Old Testament and say, if God could part the Red Sea for Egypt, why can't he do that for me? If God could bring down plagues on, on Egypt, why 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 can't he do that for me? Now, is that going to happen in this lifetime? Maybe not. I don't know. God's sovereign. That means he gets to do what he wants to do. I don't have a problem with that. And I don't think we as believers should. But if we don't have an idea of God's love, his kindness, his justice, and his protection and care over his people, over those who have decided to follow him and devote their lives to him, then we can get led astray by all of these half-truths. We can get, you know, totally confused by some memes if we don't know what the truth is behind what they're trying to discredit. And there's a lot of people trying to discredit not just the Bible, but trying to discredit God himself. And so we we need to be walking with a desire to know him, you know, even more than we do now. And every day should be marked with, how do I get to know God better? How do I get to know him more? Not because he's some kind of frog in a lab experiment that we need to dissect, but because that's the source of our faith. That's what sustains us, and that's what helps us through those hard times and to hold on to the truth that God will deliver through this. And yes, that may be an eternal deliverance, you know, after we're dead upon his return to reign on this earth. I don't know how he's going to play it out, but I do know that as believers, we can rest in the knowledge that this isn't the end. Mm-hmm. That, so, um, you know, God's a God of redemption, and I think that's one of the things that the Bible points us to over and over again. And we, we tend to think that redemption is just something that should happen without any hard times, any hardship. That's not how it works. If there's nothing to be redeemed from, then why do you need redemption? So, right, right. Well, and you know, you were talking earlier about the people trying to discredit God, and you see really the language here is, is and part of it is with the the discrediting. There, are, there are there are parts of uh, there are certain uh, let's say groups within Christianity <laughs> that really don't help with this, um, th- yeah. because I mean. Let's. I mean, let's just say it. I mean, we we try not to to just make the show about bashing <laughs> anyone or any one group, but there are there are some extremists in like the Calvinist groups who will tell you that God sends sinners to hell because He delights in that justice. He enjoys it. It brings Him and glory. The, yeah, and <laughs> that's. That's one of the things that whenever you look at this, it, the language in, in this passage completely contradicts that. You know, and there, there's also in Ezekiel where God says, I don't delight in the death mm-hmm. of the wicked. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand how you get the, this idea because I have, I ha, you know, I've seen in, in conversations on the internet, of course, typically, you know, that's where, that's where the, the extremists typically like to hide out. <laughs> but when, when being asked the question of, you know, well, why, you know, if, if someone, and I don't even know how these conversations get started most of the time or where a lot of these thoughts come from, but, you know, there, there's, there's the question of, well, what, why does, uh, you know, why does God not save everyone? Well, there's, you know, there's that conundrum. But then mm-hmm. there's also the, well, why would God want us to preach the gospel to everyone if someone's going to be judged more harshly for directing, for rejecting the gospel when they hear it yeah. outright? And then I've actually heard people answer that, well, it's so that their punishment in hell can be more severe. And, and 
And well, why does God care about wow. punishing someone more severely? No, I, I literally have, have wow. been in conversations where that's the answer. And I go, that does not sound like the God I read about in the Bible. Yeah. I, I mean, and so when you talk about people trying to discredit God, like I say, when you take, uh, when you're more married to your systematic, that you have to take it to that extreme, that God would send the gospel to someone so that they could reject it, so that he could punish them more because he wants to punish them more. I, I, don't, I don't see that in the Bible, and it's passages like this in Jeremiah 9. I hadn't really planned on talking about this, but, <laughs> but it's passages like this in Jeremiah 9 where God says, you know, I'm weeping over mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, you know, he's saying, you know, I'm going to go through with the justice. I'm going right. to go ahead and let the people be driven out of the land because that's their, you know, they made the choices to to follow other gods and to not honor me. They don't want and, anything to do with me, so I'll let them have their way. Yeah, but he he is not saying, oh, goody, now I get to punish them. Right. I mean, it's it's clear in the text here, and... And again, I, I didn't intend it to, to be like <laughs> harping on Calvinists, but then then you get into like people go, well, there, there's the revealed will, which is what God says should happen, and then there's His secret will, which you is mean the schizophrenic lying God. It, well, exactly, exactly, and that's what it comes down to, and that's one of the reasons I can't subscribe to that because if if you have to if you have to make up God has a secret unrevealed will that is 180 degrees out of sync mm-hmm. with what he tells us about himself in his word, right? then you have made God a liar. Right. So um, there, <laughs> there's my unplanned rant, but that's, I mean, we, we've got to get back to reading our Old Testament. We've got to get back into understanding God's heart the prophets, mm-hmm. what was going on, and and seeing that, you know, it's it's not this, oh, I like to punish people because I can type of character. Read Lamentations. Read Jeremiah, who we've just talked about. Read what he has to say about the way God laments over his people. And, and mm-hmm. I'm not just talking Israel, because we've got to remember God's purpose and his plan from the very beginning was to return all of humanity, not just Israel, all of humanity, back to his kingdom, to bring them back into relationship with him. Matter of fact, mm-hmm. uh, the next verse is uh, in Jeremiah 9 that I was going to look at is verse 24. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. So right there, I mean, everything that we hear about, oh, God just enjoys wrath and punishment and all of this horror. No, that's that's not true. He he says it right here. I mean, it's in plain English if you're reading an English translation. It doesn't get much more clear than that. Judgment, wrath, all of these things which I'm not denying, God does practice and because he says that too. These are not something he delights in and there's a difference between saying, "Hey, this is something I need to do for the good of everyone." Versus, I'm doing this because I enjoy it. And so that's, I mean, if you're a parent, this is what I don't get. A lot of these people are parents, and the fact that they don't get that concept scares me for their kids. Okay, let's just be honest about that. Because, you know, as a parent, if I'm delighting in punishing my child, not just disciplining, but punishing, because there's a difference, then I am, I'm wrong. DHS, CPS, they need to come get those kids and put them someplace safe. So anyway, now you got me wound up. So, well, (laughs) yeah. And any parent who's, you know, who's had to take away privileges from a kid. I mean, that's not just punishment for the kid. Right. And it's, and it's, and it doesn't make your life easier most of the time. Right. You know, when I, when I tell my kids, Hey, you, no screens for the rest of the day because you hit your sister over which show to watch. You know, that's not exactly making the rest of my day easier most of the time. Yeah. In fact, 
it it forces and I mean it forces us to interact more, which is probably a good thing in the long <laughs> run. But I don't always delight in having to take things away from them. So well, yeah, it it hurts. It should hurt your heart when your kids are hurt, and or when your kids have done something to hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would hope that your kids would know better, but they don't always because they're kids, and all of humanity we're just kids. And I don't care, you know, you can be 120 years old and a human being, you're still just a kid in light of the eternal God that we serve. Right. So, but yeah. So what I found fascinating about all of this in Jeremiah, to pull us back on course, is that we have this very relatable story of a human being, of David, somebody who has experienced betrayal, somebody who has been hurt by people he trusted. And then we get this insight into God that we can take right back to David, where we can look at, okay, we've got this relatable story, and now this God who is sometimes really hard to comprehend. I mean, he's God. Come on. He's not easy to understand all the time. And we can relate to him now through this lens. We can understand now that just as David was lamenting the loss of the friendship and the fellowship, I mean, remember he talked about walking in God's house with this dude uh, that had betrayed him. And God saying, I felt the same way. I feel the same way. When my people step away from me, when they aren't doing what they're supposed to do, I, I, I everything the psalmist said, that's in my heart too. And mm-hmm. so it really gives you the, this insight into a God who can have this, the same emotional turmoil, all the pain, all the hurt, and all the things we think of as being strictly human reactions. But the, the Bible, Jeremiah is saying, this is God's experience. And, you know, and this shouldn't surprise us because we as human beings are made in God's image. And, you know, um, if you want to get into that, Carmen Iams, um, I always forget the name of her book. Um, Bear, bearing God's I think it's, I think bearing God's name, I believe, is the title of it. Right, it's like we'll, right we'll here. Put it in show notes. It's right here beside me, but the spines turn the wrong way. <laughs> so, but you know, we we're created in the image of God. So the fact that human emotions can run parallel or or image or mirror God's emotions shouldn't surprise us at all. Uh, this should actually be something we can use as a little bit of an insight. Now, we don't want to go too far with that because then we fall into the other ditch um, where, you know, we try to make God too human. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think one of our, our really big mistakes that at least in the church and faith tradition I think you and I grew up in is the God of the Old Testament. I mean, he's this big abstraction. He, he lives, you know, way out there. And so we don't see him uh, as being intimate with the creation. We don't see him as sharing in these human uh, attributes. We kind of reserve that um, for the New Testament. But, you know, here we have two kings. We got the king of of Israel, David, and we have the king of the universe, and they mirror each other. And so David and God are sharing these emotions. So when we talk about God, uh, David being a man after God's own heart, we can now begin to understand why that's true. Because as a king of Israel, as the king of the universe, when people cause that break between the king, the guy who's nurtured and loved and protected a nation, that's a betrayal. That hurts. And that hurts the creator of our universe. So I think sometimes we, we've been looking at this wrong because we think, okay, so how can David aspire to be like God? Or how can we say that, you know, we're, we're working it from the bottom up instead of bringing it from the top down where God says, you know, it hurts me whenever you remove me from my throne. Whenever I'm, I don't have that praise of my people to be enthroned upon, when I don't have the, the place that I'm supposed to, to hold dominion over, th- this hurts my heart. And so um, the fact that we have the, these very similar descriptions, it's, it gives you a different insight into the impact that people have on God's heart. And you know, I don't think we have a problem with that when it comes to Jesus. Uh, we, we, we've got the story of his life and when he walked among humanity, but 
I think when we just say, oh, well, Jesus is the only part of God, and I don't want to get into whether that's a correct description of the Trinity or not, but when we say, you know, Jesus is the only aspect of God that can experience that, then we're discounting the fact that Jesus is God. You know, that he, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that becomes problematic when our views with the Trinity. But what we... Well, and, and this is something that I... And this is just a thought. I'm just going to throw this out here. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be wrong, but it's just a thought that I had, was is that I do think that we try to make God, like, God's holy. He's separate. He's mm-hmm. unique. Right. Uh, there, there's, there's no doubt about that, but I think we try to make him, like, holy plus, you know, like, <laughs> extra holy. And But if we think about it, God came in human form. God mm-hmm. walked the earth, mm-hmm. and a lot of people missed it. Mm-hmm. Now, we're yes. made in God's image. Mm-hmm. So why, how far are we removing God in our minds from how he actually is, Right, trying to make him more other than us? Because, and I'm not trying to say that we're almost like God, but we are made in his image. So there's enough of humanity that closely enough resembles God that when he showed up in the flesh, a lot of people missed it. That's a really good point. Because I think because, you know, when we talk about Jesus' miracles, they, they, they almost seem more intimate in a way than the miracles God did in the Old Testament. And, you know, because you know, Jesus is healing the individual. He, he's touching the person. Where, you know, when God moves in the Old Testament, a lot of times it, it is these big dramatic events where they impact, it, it, the events impact the entire nation. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that kind of plays into this idea of the total separateness, but not just separateness. Um, I think that that holy plus that you were talking about actually translates into inaccessible, that that God cannot be reached. God cannot be touched or or affected by human decision. And obviously that's not true. And we see this in the prophet's writing. We saw this in Jeremiah 9, that absolutely 100% God is impacted by humanity. And so what we think, need to remember in the Old Testament, God is every bit as real to them as Jesus was to those that walked with him as he is to us, maybe even more so. I mean, I can't imagine what would it have been like if you stood at the foot of Sinai, if you looked up there and saw that mountain burning and shaking and the voice of God, you know, rumbling. What do you, how much real does it get? And so how much more real? And, you know, God is responsive to people. And even in the Old Testament, he's responsive. Why do you think we have stories of wrath and judgment? It's because God is responding to people's decision. This is also why we have miraculous deliveries and we have, you know, love and mercy shown in the Old Testament. And a God who's responsive has to draw near enough for his people to have access to him. And that really is the whole point of settling in Israel. This is the land where God meets with his people. This is the point of David wanting to build the temple so that people have a place to meet with God. This is the point of the tabernacle so that people have a place to meet with God. Everything in biblical history is about creating a sacred place where the divine and the human can come together. This did not start with Jesus, and it did not end with the death of the apostles. It continues on today. And so when we we have these stories within the Bible where we can connect these real relatable human events where God says, this is an image of my heart. Here's some way for you to grab hold of it. This should be some a tool that we pick up and say, if it's true then, it can be true now. And I just, I get so frustrated because we miss it. We, we, we just completely miss how present and real God was in ancient Israel. And I think mm-hmm. we, we need to be, we need to be understanding the significance of God's presence with them, within them as a nation. If we're ever going to start to, to, grasp the significance of the Holy, Pre- Holy Spirit's presence in our life today. And so 
all of this is all of its types, shadows, imagery that we we pick up on, not because um, the words went out of my mind, but a lot of this is approach it from a different direction in that a lot of these stories are concessions to our humanity. Uh, that it's God saying people won't get it unless I say it this way. People won't understand unless I do it this way. And so a lot of times when we have these symbols and these little, uh, I call them like little handholds, these little grips that we can, we can grab hold of, we need to recognize that that's not the totality of the message. The message should point us to something larger. But at the same time, we, we need that grip. We need that handhold in order to go deeper, to go further, because if we don't have some way for our brains to begin to access the information, and usually that's through metaphor, it's through analogy, it's through this poetic speak. And, you know, that's the beautiful thing about how God relates to humanity. Not only do we have these messages written in these terminologies and words that that encompass something bigger than what they're actually talking about, then we also have these stories where humans kind of play out those little bits and pieces of the story to to help us grasp. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's easier to relate to to David than it is to Jesus. Uh, You know, I get being angry. I get ignoring my responsibilities. I get crying out for help when I have messed things up beyond repair. I I get the need for God's vindication where if I moved, then it's just going to make me look like somebody grasping for power. These are concepts I understand. And so David is a handhold that, that points us to a larger, greater image. So when Christ does show up, we can say, ah, yes, no matter how great David was, Jesus is bigger. Jesus is better. Jesus fills in all the gaps that David had in his life, and he he does it perfectly, and this is why we can have faith in God. But at the same time, David gives us that emotional structure and imagery of a God who is passionate. And I think it's very significant that we see in the Old Testament a God who is passionate, not a God who, you know, kind of like the deist... um, view of him where he wound up the universe, stepped away, let -hmm. everything kind of play out. And then it's like, you know, in 2000 years ago, he went, oh, human beings need to be put back on track. So I'm going to show up in the form of Jesus. Hey, yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He he didn't just look down and go, oh man, saving just a few, (laughs) saving just one nation's a terrible idea. (laughs) Right. And I think because we have spent so much time focused on the New Testament, you know, the Gospels and Paul's writings, which are great. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I I don't want to discount the importance of the New Testament to the Christian faith. But because we've spent so much time there without bothering to see how it connects back to the Old Testament stories, we've missed the real and tangible presence of God in the lives of humanity since the very beginning. And, you know, um, it, it, it's kind of funny when I was teaching, uh, funny, sad, not funny, haha. Um, when I was teaching, I had students who didn't realize that God actually walked in the Garden of Eden. Uh, they, they didn't realize that God ate a meal with Abraham. They, you know, all of these things that the Bible clearly says, but for some reason, even though we read those words, it's so easy to miss that is God. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he he was alive and was present and he is alive and he is present. And I, for me, what that does is as I'm looking at my life and it's so tempting to say, oh, well, you know, God just doesn't show up that way today. Uh, we're, we've, we've passed that point where God moves supernaturally. And I could so easily misjudge, <clears throat> excuse me, misjudge what God was doing in the Old Testament and his activities in the Old Testament. It makes me stop and question, am I misjudging what God is doing today? And am I trying to put a box around him to make him a little bit more manageable? 
Because if we want to get very honest about what God was doing in the Old Testament, it was mind-blowing. It was not a distant God. It was not a God who didn't care or a God who failed to show up and act. This is a God who was very much present and very much a part of history from the beginning of time and continued to be that way. So um, that that was my takeaway from looking at Psalm 55 and Jeremiah 9 together. I, I It just, it made the illustration of David being a man after God's own heart much more, I don't know what's the word for it. It, it, it made more sense. It, it made it, yeah, it really clarified things. And when you said we were going into Jeremiah 9, I was I was very curious about how we, how it was tying in because I'm like, like, this isn't, <laughs> number one, it's not David. Number two, this I think this was after David had mm-hmm. uh, died when Jeremiah was written. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like I'm like going through my prophets. I'm like going now. The, the prophets, because they weren't really big players in Israel again until after David's reign, right? Aside from like uh, Nathan the prophet to to David, but again, that's a personal matter, not necessarily a national matter. Right. Uh, well, it, kind it of has. Both. Well, it has national consequences, but it is really just you know Nathan comes to to deal with David's heart. Where, uh, yeah, the other prophets do come to deal with the, the king's heart within a matter, but so often they're also addressing the whole condition of the nation. Where Right, and how they're ruling the nation. Where, yeah, the, the other prophets aren't so much talking about like the injustices of David's rule and things like that. Yeah, and so you—it's really—the uh, the prophets do come into their own, and, and it is interesting to—, to mentioned that, you know, Samuel set that system into place. When Samuel tried, and I'm not saying he did it without God's permission or that God didn't want this, when when Samuel really made it so that the, the king of Israel at that time, Saul, was dependent upon and accountable to the prophet, that set the format for the rest of the history of the monarchy in Israel. And so the prophet never is supposed to step into that leadership role, which is where we start to find those kind of fuzzy times in Samuel's life where it was kind of like, Samuel, what, you, what are you doing, man? Uh, is when he tries to overstep those bounds. But when a prophet steps in to the rest of history, their role is the support of the king. It's in defense of the king, not to defend him, oh, and what he does is right all the time. It's in defense of the king as in, dude, if you want to stay on the throne, if you want to retain leadership, you need to do the right thing. You need to be right. leading your people in the right way. So, so the prophets have this role, and I, I do think that even today, protecting the protecting the king the king from himself effectively. Exactly, exactly. And I think even today, um, this was something that we talked about this weekend when I was uh, with Doug and everybody from CRC. Is the prophetic role today should still be around in the sense of we want to protect leadership. We want to help them do their best. We want them to excel. We want them to understand that God wants success in their ministry. And so it's not just, um, it's not just, oh, let me act like a fortune cookie or a parlor trick or, you know, a magic eight ball, uh, which a lot of people, that's how they treat the prophetic gifting in the church. It, It is about how do we serve God better? And so that ultimately that is the the defining role of a, of a prophet. How mm. do we serve God better? How do we respond to his heart better? And you know, part of that's by avoiding sin. Part of that's by doing the right thing. And so I I think overall we've kind of missed the point of the prophets because they seem so out there. I mean, they're they're weird individuals. If you really study the prophets, you cannot get around the fact that they are just strange, strange little dudes. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they're that way not because they're just weirdos. They're that way because they've experienced something that is not of this world, something that is not a part of the natural. It is literally supernatural. And so there is this 
experience of God's heart that that gives them a different perspective on the natural that a lot of people may not be aware of, they may not be sensitive to. And so in that sense, David, and we've talked about this before, David is very much a prophet because he has experienced God's heart. And this is where we get the meat of so many of our Psalms, where he's trying to explain that and trying to um, give us words and analogies, and these word pictures that we as human beings can grasp onto. And I think that's why people like the Psalms so much, because they really do point to something bigger and something grander than this specific moment. If you're hearing some rumbling, that's the cats running on the roof of the camper. Oh, I, I can't hear it. I, okay. I, I don't think it's coming through. Well, I think like the whole camper is like jarring. So if you see some shaking, if you're watching on YouTube, it's the cats. Welcome to my life. So, but I think that's probably a good place to to uh, put a semicolon. And when we pick up next week, we'll be looking at the rest of Second Samuel 16. It feels like we've been away from the story for a while. And uh, we'll kind of recap and get everybody caught up on what's happening with David and Absalom and Ahithophel and all the others that are at play right now. So, yeah. Well, that's all going to happen next week. Um, in the meantime, if you're interested in being part of the conversation, uh, hit us up on the uh, the social media, Raven Creek SC or RavenCreekSC.com. That's the website, gets you to our show, show notes, other shows hosted by the Raven Creek Social Club. And, uh, yeah, just if you want to be part of the conversation, head us up. <laughs> so I'm, that's all I got for now. Yeah. So, so we'll talk to you next week. All right. <laughs> See you. Bye. Bye. podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.